providential. Let's read our story, all right? We've been here last week. I made the decision that we're going to be here again next week because I, I, we could have squeezed everything in today, but uh, I just kind of cut it off and said we'll talk about that next week. So we might be shorter today, but of course every time I say we're going to be shorter, we go, we go a little longer. But let's, uh, let's read this very familiar story again, okay? It starts in verse 11. And he said, There was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. He was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate. No one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And he began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing, and he called one of his servants and asked what these things meant. He said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf, because he received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I have never disobeyed your command. You never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. And this son of yours came who has devoured your property with prostitutes and killed the fattened calf for him. He said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this your brother was dead and is alive and is lost and is found. Father, we want to hear your word today. This is your word. What you've said here. In this passage is your very word. And now help us to truly understand what you mean by what you have said. And take the truths that we will see in Scripture and apply them to our lives. And should there be one in this room who does not know Christ personally, who is still separate from him in their sin, pray that today they might turn, repent, and find Jesus to be a forgiving, kind Savior. We pray these things. It's unbelievable that it's been almost 10 years since we've uh, been in ministry together. Nine, nine years this year, and then next year we'll celebrate 10 years. It's almost, that's astonishing to me. Uh, 2010 was a real turning point for Lee and I because I really felt like our ministry was over. We'd been let go from our church in Lapeer due to different circumstances, even though we'd kind of given our lives to that ministry. Um, and I really felt like the Lord had, was ending my time in ministry. I didn't know what I was going to do because I couldn't do anything else. I, I don't, you know, so it was real frustrating. Lee real discouraging. Uh, Leah had a pulmonary embolism in her lung when Jessa was born. Jessa really had a serious time of struggle 
um, yet God preserved them. And, and even on Wednesday night, seeing Jessa raise her arms in the Grand Prix, there's a picture on Facebook that is so funny. You, maybe you saw it. Jessa's car lost the race. You can see in the picture that Jessa's car came in second and Anna, Annabella's car came in first. And Jessa is just freaking out and Annabella's gone. <laughs> like, what is wrong with this child? She lost. And, and besides, besides the privilege of, of God preserving my family, he also enabled us to have this wonderful ministry with you. And, and I think the best days for Grace Baptist are ahead of us. I think God is going to build this church and grow this ministry and save souls. I hope you do too. I hope that's why you're here. Um, and, and even if all of that ended tomorrow, I'm eternally secure as a child of God, blessed with all the spiritual blessings that he has given me. And in his providence, I, I thought about this yesterday as I was kind of wrapping up the message, that, that I'm privileged to just study his word and then with fear and trembling stand in this pulpit and try to deliver it to you faithfully. And we started, believe it or not, our series in Luke in April of 2016. This is our 101st message on the Gospel of Luke, the greatest story ever told. And I'm kind of sad that it's moving towards an end. The plan is to end it next Easter at the resurrection part at the end of Luke. And, and I'm kind of sad about that because I love so much just coming and seeing what Jesus said and hearing uh, and hearing what he said and seeing what he did and then applying it to our lives. What a joy it is to lift him up to you. And that's what I want to do today. Now, I read a phrase earlier this week in the study, and I thought that's going to be the phrase that is going to guide this message today. Now, before I give that to you, um, let's do a little background. The Bible is clear, and Derek mentioned it in Sunday School again this morning, that all of us universally are infected with the disease of sin. There is not one of us, not one person in the history of mankind who was not diagnosed with this disease. In Psalm, we are told that we are conceived in sin, that the moment the seed meets the egg and creates that human life, that embryo, that embryo has a sin nature. This is because of Romans 5.12, where it says, one man's sin, and because of that, death passed to all men, for all have sinned. The universal proof that all sin or, is that all die, right? That's the universal proof of sin, that there are not 500-year-olds hanging out still because they somehow were perfect. Death, according to Romans 6.23, is the curse of sin. And Romans 3.23, Isaiah 53.6 used the word all. All we like sheep have gone astray. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And these sins, according to Isaiah 59, verse 2, separate us from God. All of us enter this world disconnected from God. Not connected, and then somehow things spin out of control, and we find ourselves disconnected. We enter the world disconnected, needing to be reconnected to God. And even though all of us are separate from God, all do not express it the same way. And this is the key phrase that I want us to get. And if you write things down, this would be the thing to write down. Because I think this embodies what Jesus is sharing in the parable of the lost sons. In the parable, who is the one who is lost? Trick question, right? Trick question. Who is lost? Both sons are lost. And both sons represent mankind 
in that they represent the different ways that people exercise their lostness. I hope this is making sense. In other words, both are separated from their father in the story, and they personify all sinners who are separated from their heavenly father, yet they do not express that sin in the same way. Not if you're following so far. No one's nodding. Okay, got a couple. We'll keep going. Two out of 30 ain't bad. Here's the phrase. All are sinners. Some are separated from God overtly, and some are separated from God covertly. And that's, that's going to be very helpful in the course of this message. Some express their sin the way the first son did, the younger son did, indulging themselves in all kinds of outward passions. It's obvious you point at the person. They spend their nights at the casino, drunk, and hang out with prostitutes after. They, that they live that indulgent, immoral lifestyle. But then you have covert sinners who are close to their father, being where they're supposed to be, doing what they're supposed to do, but they are still separate. The world focuses on which one. The church focuses on which one. They focus on the overt sinner, the one who is obviously rebellious, and they often, hopefully the church doesn't, but the world often lifts up the covert sinner as a religious person or a good person. And the greater danger lies with which one? The covert sinner. Because they feel like they're okay. They've attended Awana. They were part of the youth group. They may have even went to Christian school. Right? Christian grammar school in high school. Can't believe I said grammar school. Must have been watching Leave it to Beaver. But they went to Christian school. They, they went to the workforce and they attended church. They, they came more than just on Easter. There is a danger for that person because that person, according to the end of verse 7, remember this is kind of a key to the whole section of 15, that person is part of the group that is a righteous person who need no repentance. And again, we said you have to think, think they need no repentance. It's just another way of putting it, and I think those words that kind of rhyme are very helpful. In Luke 15, we have these two groups. We have the people who are sinners, who know they need to repent, and who are the real people Jesus is talking to who are represented by those people. Who are the real people? He's talking to them, 15, 1 and 2. They are who? The tax collectors and the sinners. And then you have this other group of people who are, are self-righteous and feel they do not need to repent. Who are those real people? We talked about them all last week. Pharisees and the scribes, very good. And so Jesus is expressing this story to share that all are separated, even though all do not express it the same way. And the greater danger is for the one who is close. You ever watch a mystery movie with the family, or you're out watching some detective show, um, and sometimes it becomes so clear, and, and this phrase, we've said it probably a lot in our family, maybe you have too, and the person comes on the screen and you say, oh, he's bad. He's bad. You ever watching a movie, you're watching some, some mystery movie or spy movie, and you, you, you may not say it out loud, but you come to the realization, oh, he's bad. But sometimes I don't get it very quick, and so we might be watching a movie, and I say, is he bad? Is, is he with the bad guys? You know what I'm talking about? Is he? We can't really identify the villain. So in the story that Jesus is telling, who is the villain? According to the Pharisees and scribes, for them, it's like watching a movie, and they can pinpoint the villain immediately. To the Pharisees and scribes, who is the villain? 
the, well, both are lost, but it's the younger son who's indulging in these, these sinful practices, right? He's the villain. But what Jesus is saying is the real villain in the story is the good person. He's the villain. Here's what each represents, and we're going to specifically try to focus on the younger son today. Here's what each represents. The younger son represents repentance. The father represents rejoicing. The older son represents resentment. Okay? The younger son represents repentance. He, he pictures what it looks like when a person repents. The father represents rejoicing. He's the one who, is, who takes great gladness when the guy does repent, while the older son represents resentment. Or you could, if you wanted to use not quite an R word, you could say he represents the righteous. And again, you put that in quotes because he's not really righteous, but he thinks he is. And that might even be a better term. So I want to examine the parable starting with the younger son and, and a... We could have wrote the whole thing, but again, we, we'll finish early today, and that might be okay for today. But So let's focus on this guy who is sinning overtly. He is separate overtly from his father, not covertly. Now, this is often called the story of the prodigal son. In fact, in your Bible, you may even have a heading that says this is the prodigal son story. It's always been called that. But the word prodigal does not appear, at least in the ESV translation, it doesn't appear in the King James Version translation. It does appear, the word prodigal does appear in the New King James Version in verse number 13, where it says, not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took his journey into a far country and squandered his property in, you might circle that and draw a little, that's, that's what is translated in the New King James prodigal, it's translated in the ESV reckless. The word prodigal really means wasteful, or it could mean to be over-the-top, lavishly extravagant, to where some authors even say that the person who is prodigal in the story is the father. Okay? So let's, not, let's, let's extinguish from our vocabulary the term the prodigal son, because we are then focusing on what God and what Christ, who told the story, really doesn't want us to focus on. The focus of the story is the villain who is the true lost son, the self-righteous son. When we say the prodigal son, we miss, we miss the point of the story. Yes, we're, we're thrilled that the guy responds and, and repents and returns to his father. But often, and I think even mom said it after the service last Sunday, we, we almost feel sorry for the older son. We tend to sympathize with the older son, and that might be because we are an older son ourselves. And we kind of, we kind of are moving into the Pharisee, not that you're an older son, Mom, but, but we do have that idea that, hey, come on, this guy got, gets a raw deal here. So Jesus tries to help us um, understand the, the true point of what he's saying here, and to, to walk through the flow of the story, I've chosen some words that start with the letter D to help us, okay? So we have a demand, we have a disgrace, we have a departure, we have debasement, and then we have a decision or a determination. So you don't have to get all those down, but we'll start with demand. In verse number 12, the son makes a demand of his father, and he just says, Father, give me the share of my property. In Deuteronomy 21, you might jot this down, we won't look at it. In Deuteronomy 21, verse 17, Scripture is clear that the firstborn son, and again, we talked last week about needing to know the culture, needing to know a little historical context because it helps us understand even more. And the Pharisees and the tax collectors listening to this would immediately understand this. The scribes who were the teachers of the law would understand exactly how this was even worse 
because according to Deuteronomy 21:17, the firstborn son was to receive a double portion of the father's inheritance. Sorry about that, Judah. The firstborn son receives a double inheritance of the father's portion. So in this particular case, the older son should get two-thirds of all the father owned, where the younger son gets one-third. That's according to Deuteronomy 21, 17. And the delineation of property was of great importance. Even if the father wanted to divide his inheritance before he died, now that was not illegal, he could do that. Even he's in good health and say, okay, you're going to get... You're going to get the property over on, you know, uh, Main Street. And you're going to get the property over here. He could do that. It, the, the historical Jewish uh, writers tell us that was unwise for the father to do, but it was not illegal for him to do. But if he did do that, if he did divide his property before his death, the sons could not really do anything with that property until the father died. They couldn't turn around and sell it because it still, in a sense, resi resided in the father's possession. This patriarchal uh, context is so important. The father was to be revered and honored. He was, he was the leader, and he passed out that, that uh, property the way he wanted to, and usually it happened upon his death. You recall uh, places in the Old Testament where this is uh, mentioned, but because we're, it's not the focus, we don't pay attention to it. Remember when King Ahab desired to have Naboth's vineyard, uh, and he started whining, and Jezebel was like, come on, you, you, run, you know that whole story, and they killed Naboth. Well, before that, in 1 Kings 21, verse 3, here's what Naboth said, because he just asked for it at first, or wanted, maybe he even wanted to buy it. I, I didn't look at that, just grab this verse. The Lord forbid, Naboth says to the king, the Lord forbid that I should give the inheritance of my fathers to you. The inheritance was just an important thing in that culture. I will not just give it to you. But it is not... The fact, uh, or it's not the amount requested that is the shock here of the son. It is the fact that he requested it at all and, th and that he demanded it. The timing of this is just totally messed up. And that is the shock. And point two, the disgrace of the request. This younger son's request, give me the share of my property, father, is a shame to his family, but especially to his father, and you've probably heard it said, if you've read any books on the, this uh, parable or if you've studied this at all, you've probably heard it said, the son is basically saying to the father, I wish you were dead, right? When do you get, when do you get your family's inheritance upon their death? And I just explained to you in the Jewish culture, it was very, very similar. So basically saying, I wish you were dead. I want nothing to do with you except I want what's coming to me. Well, the Jewish listeners, specifically the Pharisees and scribes, would see the dishonor in the request and were probably rooting for their father's response. Right? For them, the father was to be honored, not disgraced, and this was a complete dishonor to him. And the father had a lot of potential responses. Right? I, I just jotted a few down. He could try to appease the son. You know, hey, I, I know, I know you're kind of getting a raw deal, younger son. But what if I were to up your allowance, or what if I were to give you a special, uh, a special responsibility or privilege? Would that, would that satisfy you for a period of time? He could have argued with the son. You know, just who do you think you are, kid? Uh, he could have appealed to the son, kind of appealed to his sense of honor. Do you know what this is going to do to our family if you do this? And really, he had one more 
uh, course of action available to him. According to that same passage in Deuteronomy 21, verse 17 talks about the distribu- uh, distribution of the property. But in verses 18 to, 20, 18 to 21, I think that's it, 21, 18 to 21, it talks about what to do with a rebellious son. If the rebellious son will not, this is a paraphrase, but it's from that passage, if the rebellious son will not listen to the voice of his father and instead continues to rebel, then you take him before the elders of the city and have him stoned to death. You know what the Pharisees were saying? I'm sure who were listening to this story, that's the response that they were cheering for. At least a punch in the mouth. Right? At least a punch in the mouth. Slap across the face. Some sort of rebuke. And maybe even public death. The son who was oblivious to behavior was saying, I want out of here. And I will take whatever I can on my way out. Just make it fast. I don't want you, your rules, your authority. And really what he's saying is, I don't even want a relationship with you. In fact, when this decision was made, there really was no coming back from it. In fact, it's it's clued in for us in verse number 24 when the father talks Uh, to the servants about when the son returned, notice what he says about him. For for this my son, maybe his arm around the younger son, for this my son was what? Dead. That's how the relationship was viewed. The relationship was over. It wasn't like he was going to head out for the weekend and return and, well, I, I messed up. Oh, that's okay. We all go through that, sowing your wild oats type thing. The relationship was over. He was, I mean, because I say, you're dead to me. That's that's the situation here. Give me what's coming to me, and I'm out of here. And in verse 12, the father responds. He doesn't appeal. He doesn't argue. he uh, He doesn't try to appease the son. He doesn't take the son out to be stoned, which he could have done. He just gives him his stuff. And the Lord is just so quick to say this. The younger said, Father, give me the share of my property that's coming to me. And he divided his property between them. The word is bios, means life. His whole life. He took everything that, everything that belonged to him and gave him the portion that belonged to him. And, and uh, he left. Now, two conclusions the listeners would draw from this. One, I already said, the relationship is over. The son is dead. I got to that already. But second observation, especially that the Pharisees and scribes would make, is this father is weak. This man is weak. How could this father endure this type of rejection? Why did he not exercise his parental and even legal scriptural authority and put this rebel in his place? Understand this, that in the rebellion of this son to the accountability of his father, the younger son pictures and represents all of the overtly separated sinners who many count unworthy of deliverance. Did you understand what I just said? Because you put yourself in your context, this prodigal son who is saying, Dad, I wish you were dead, give me my stuff and I'm out of here. The Pharisees would say, those type of people, we should not even be interacting with those type of people and that's what Jesus was doing. Right? That's what precipitated this whole conversation. Because they didn't like that Jesus was even interacting with those people because those people are dead to us. 
They do not deserve deliverance. And a lot of self-righteous people look down upon those type of people in our society as well. And this is, a, this is an attitude that can even creep into our thinking and into our church. Got to be careful. In fact, I've even heard things, and I hope you've never thought this, about these type of overtly separated sinners, right? We're talking about the difference between someone who is overtly separated, they're indulging in everything, and someone who is covertly separated. Have we even thought, you know, well, won't they get a rude surprise when they wake up in hell? I've heard people not express it maybe that violently, but I've heard people express thoughts like that about people who have been kind of wild and off the rails. And I've heard it said about the homosexual community. Uh, you know, and, and yes, we, we hate that type of sin. We, we, we understand it as rebellion against God, but we understand that those, those type of sinners, those who are overtly separated God, from God, can be saved in God's providence, can be saved if they would repent. And that's what we should be cheering for and working towards and praying about. Not like the Pharisees who see them as dead and gone. And while the son depicts the overtly separated sinner, the father depicts the tender mercy of Christ who is willing to suffer that rejection. And the love of the kind father which is supposed to lead us to repentance. Romans chapter 2 verse 4. It's like... And, and, and I know we don't think about this in the covert way either, but all sin is, is an affront to God. I'm going to say more about this in just a second, so I'm going to hold on for a second. It is an affront to God. It is, it is as if we are basically saying to God, too, I want nothing to do with you. You're, you're dead to me. This relationship is over. Now, I'd like to receive all the good things that you might give me, but you, I want nothing to do with you. And And in that goodness that God still provides, right? God sends the rain on the evil and the good. I, I, say, I, I seem to repeat myself all the time, but unbelieving sinners can enjoy March Madness and barbecue and lemonade, right? They, they can enjoy all the good things that God has granted them, and they don't realize that those kindnesses that God is giving them is meant to lead them to repent of their sin. But what Romans 2 says is, People presume upon the goodness of God, believe they deserve it, instead of saying, wow, I got a pretty good father, and I'm a wicked son, and I should repent and turn to God. And they don't do that. They just continue to indulge in their sin. Romans 2.4 is the verse. I don't know if I mentioned that verse, but that's the verse that talks about God's, God's kindness meant to lead us to repentance. Now, an interesting question. I'm going to step aside here. I do that when I'm not firm on Bible footing here. This is just my speculation, okay? Let's ask ourselves a question, and you can answer out loud. In the first parable of the lost sheep, who is seeking for the sheep? Everybody answer nice and loud. <laughs> it wasn't, yeah, shepherd. In the parable of the lost coin, who is seeking the coin? The woman. In the parable of the son, who is seeking the son? Seeking him? And so you start to ask the question, okay, okay this is just kind of questioning the Bible. Not, I don't mean questioning as in, I'm just saying, asking questions as we're reading the story. Where's the older brother at this point? Right, where's the older brother? He's absent from the story right now. What? Yeah, but where, where, so I'm just saying, where is he? This is, this is just a rhetorical question now, Pete. But ask yourself in your mind, where, where is he? What's he doing? What should he be doing? 
These are rhetorical questions, but I appreciate the feedback. Yeah. Well, he should be highly offended at his brother's behavior, shouldn't he? If he is rightly related to his father, again, this is all speculation. If he is rightly related to his father, and he hears his crummy son doing it, his crummy brother doing this, he should go over and grab that son by the collar and say, what are you doing? Our dad's a good dad. How dare you disgrace our family like this? And then when the son goes away, why isn't the son tracking him down? Why, why is he doing that? Come back. We got a grade here. And some have said, and again, I'm not on real solid, but, but I, I tend to believe this. Some have said that, uh, that it's because this son didn't have a relationship with the father either. And some have even so gone so far to say as we need an older brother who will come search for us and, and that Christ is the true older brother. Who it's, it's an interesting thought. But the point is, is that the, the guy who is being the, quote, the, the older brother is, is kind of proud that he's the good son who's staying behind and doing the work. And we'll talk more about him next week. But basically, it's because he didn't want the father either. He didn't love the father either. If he had loved the father, it would, it would, we could venture to say that he should Stick up for him because he is lost covertly, secretly. In fact, while the Pharisees are listening to the story, they're probably saying that older son is the only good, or the yeah, the older son is the only good character we got in this story. The younger son, he's off the rails. The father, he's a weak individual. He didn't exercise his biblical authority. He didn't exercise his parental authority. He's a weak loser. That's what they were saying about the father. The only guy we got to hang on in the story is the older brother, and that, that's them. They're doing what's right. They're out in the field. They're sweating away. Even when the music and dancing starts, he's out in the field where he's supposed to be, doing what he's supposed to, even though he's separate still. Third point, he's departing. As we've, we've had the demand, we've had the disgrace, and now we have the departing. Not many days later, verse 13, uh, a scholar, Greek scholar, calls us a, I'm not even going to try to pronounce what it is, but it, it, it is indicating that this was his plan. He is off. Not many days later, the son gathered all he had. Again, uh, others have written books and speculated on this. So how did he gather all he had? If the father gave him property, uh, I'm sure all of the inheritance was not ready cash. So he would have to take whatever was given to him in, in the sense of an estate or a property. And, and this guy is a wealthy father. He has hired servants. That's an indication in the story. So he, he would have had to take his property or, you know, the, the, the objects of his inheritance and do what with them immediately? Sell them and probably at very low value. His point is just to try to get whatever he can out of it. It's like the last day of a garage sale, right? Just take it, you know, just, and that's what he's doing. He's getting, he's probably getting pennies on the dollar for these things just so he can get as much money as he can to get as far away as he can to do as much as he can. That's his goal. You can see his goal is just to get lost. And another key in the story is he takes and goes into a journey into a what? What's the next two words in our passage? Just verse number 13. How many days later the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a what? Far country. What kind of country would be a far country? We're getting out of control here. Starts with a G. Starts with a G. It would be a? It would be a Gentile country. It would be a Gentile country. I mean, he's feeding pigs later on in the story. He'd be a, and, and this is another notch for the Pharisees. 
not only is he abandoning his family, abandoning his father, abandoning his faith, he's abandoning his people, his nation, to go to a Gentile country. Tied right into departure is his debasement. In other words, not the basement, but debased. He, he, is, he is going to finance this rebellion with the father's inheritance, and he is going to squander his wealth in reckless living. This is where we're going to see where his sin is going to take him. And where sin like this takes everybody, sin always leads to ruin. We're going to see that very clearly. He squandered, this is the same verse 13, squandered his property in reckless living. The position that he will find himself in did not happen to him. He caused it. It was not an accident, a bad business deal. It was not a happenstance. It was not something... Uh, uh, that randomly came about, he caused all of this, and he squandered it in reckless living. It's, the immoral aspects here are being implied. In fact, when he comes back later, the, f- the, s- the elder son says in verse number 30 that he had devoured the property with prostitutes. I don't believe that's an exaggeration, because that, that's not corrected in the story. I think that's, that's accurate, that this is what he used the money for, to indulge himself with all kinds of sinful even sexual pleasures. He had cast off all restraints. All restraints. He had indulged in all passions. He had rebelled against all authority. And where did all of this lead? Sin never, sin never delivers on its promises. Though the desire for pleasure and sin is great, it never delivers on its promises. Where did it lead him? And I appreciate what you're jumping to, but it led him to nothingness, right? The, the money ran out. We can read it again. He, so a severe famine arose, and I bet you the Pharisees are cheering at this point because they're seeing the famine as a God-induced judgment on the child because famine was often seen as that. But this circumstance arose, and he began to be in need. His inheritance had run out. So he attached himself to a citizen of the country, and the way it's worded indicates that he may even, the citizen may not even wanted him to be a part of his life, but he just, he's desperate. So he attaches himself to a citizen of that country, and he goes out in the field to feed pigs. Now, this guy has to be pretty wealthy, too, in that during a famine, he's still feeding pigs, not eating them. So this sin just takes him down and down and down to the place where he wants to eat what is being given to the pigs? Now, what would be given to the pigs? I mean, I think about what's in our compost pile. Eggshells, you know, banana peels. I mean, you're looking at that stuff wanting to eat it. This is where sin leads. Sin never delivers on its promises because some of us, I'll tell you what, the world and our own flesh men want us to believe that some sort of sexual fling or indulging in some sort of sexual passion will bring us some sort of fulfillment that we do not have. I'm telling you, you can even watch, uh, as, as we were watching a little bit of the basketball game yesterday, it's like anything we see, men, is designed to inflame us towards something wicked and evil. And so our hearts are like, you know, we gotta, we gotta move towards that because I'm not satisfied or I'm not, and, and that's just one example, the, the, the idea that sin promises something that we don't think we have, it always fails to deliver on the promise. In fact, Galatians 6, 7, and 8 instruct us on the nature of what we receive when we enter into that type of sinning. 
and I'm not talking about that type of immoral sin, but any type of sin that we overtly jump into. What a man sows, that he will also reap. The principles of sowing and reaping are these. You will always reap what you sow. You will always reap more than what you sow. And you'll always reap in a different season than when you sow. You cannot sow to your flesh corruption and think you're going to reap some sort of spiritual blessing. You cannot be men involved in some sort of pornographic habit and expect that the marriage is going to be perfect. Ladies, you can't be involved in some, in some attitude of bitterness or hate or resentment and expect that your relationship with family is going to be wonderful. If you are sowing those type of sins, you are going to reap that type of response. You're, you're going to reap corruption, Scripture says. And you're going to reap in a different season. And you're going to reap more than you sow. Well, isn't it Job that says you will, sow the whirlwind, you will sow the wind, but you will reap the whirlwind? Think about David and Bathsheba. When he stood on that porch top, looked down and saw Bathsheba, he's thinking, that is something I don't have, and that is going to fulfill what I am somehow missing in my life, even though I already have a couple of wives. He indulges in that sin, thinking the promise of pleasure will be great, and instead, it was a year later when Nathan comes to him and says, how could you do this? You know that whole story, I hope. And he faced terrible consequences. Some, it's another old phrase, sin will always take you further than you want to go, cost you more than you want to pay, and keep you longer than you want to stay. You never see the effects or the results of this. Like You think we're just kind of playing with sin. When we were at the uh, conference last year, I can't remember which, I think it was the, uh, the one in, in Louisville, Kentucky, that Dave and I went to, and I referenced this before. Like he, the, the speaker, I can't remember who it was, but the speaker talked about uh, this guy who uh, was mauled by a lion, and everybody was shocked. But this was, a, a, this was an animal he had kept as a pet, and he had raised it from its infancy, and, and all of a sudden it attacked him one day, and everybody was shocked. And he was like, why is everybody shocked? This is what a lion does. And he equated it to, you know, people have their pet sins. Well, I just kind of keep this in a corner, and I can handle it. I can keep control of it. I know what I'm doing with it. But all of a sudden it's going to turn on us, and, and that is what sin brings. And this boy is figuring this out right now. He fell to his very lowest point, hired by a Gentile to feed pigs. Since pleasure is over, he is reaping now the consequences of his rebellion. And at this point, you would think he would have gone home. But he's not quite ready yet to face the rebellion. He is still going to try to manage the crisis. I'm going to get a job. I'm going to get a job. I will work my way out of this mess. And that is what a lot of unrepentant sinners try to do first. I'm going to work my way out of it. I'll just do my best. I know where I mean, sin has brought me to a, a horrible marriage or a, uh, you know, a financial ruin or you know, reputation gone or whatever it is, but I'm just going to work harder. I'm going to work. Now I'm going to change. And that is nonsense. The younger son irrationally and inexcusably has rebelled against his father. Understand this, that sin is not just breaking laws. That is, that is not what at the, is at the heart of sin. The heart of sin is the rejection of the lawgiver. It's not, it's not just, because this, this is what our world views as sin, and a lot of times Christians view as sin, and I have been mistakenly uh, defined sin 
yes, it is breaking laws, but it's not only breaking laws. It's not like, well, I've done a couple of bad things. This is what people say. Well, I've done a few bad things in my life, so I have committed sins. But sin ultimately is a rejection of the Father. We don't want him in our lives. We don't want his authority. We don't want his control. We don't want his lordship. And that's why the other son who is still at home is a sinner also. He's just not indulging in all those passions. But oftentimes, you know what we have? We have a covert sinner who has a secret life where he is overtly sinning. Follow what I'm saying? We got the, this is why we see pastors fall. And we see, we see, we see men who have harped on certain sins, and yet they are committing those same type of sins. We've just seen it recently with two mega-pastors failing. Okay, so the idea here is that sin is a rejection of the lawgiver. We do not desire a relationship with him. We deny him his rightful place as master of our lives, and all of this, all of us, are in that category. We are hopelessly lost, separated from God, looking for earthly answers to solve the problem. So let's get to our last point, and I'm glad we only decided to talk about this. That is, he made a decision, or he was determined, whichever word you like better. This is verse 17 and following, where he finally decides to repent. He comes to himself. That word indicates some inner ruminating has caused him to want to act. He's thought about it, and now he's going to make a decision to head back to his father. And it is true repentance that he's going to exercise. When he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he rose and, and gives that speech, and the father receives him. We'll talk about that next time. Now remember I said at the beginning that each one of the characters represents something. The son, the younger son, represents a picture of repentance. This is not a scheme or a plan. And the reason we can know that is because of the two things included in his statement that indicate he is exercising true repentance. And we've talked about repentance a lot over the last few weeks, and this is the key thought of the message. I know we're, it's already 11.45, but let me do two minutes on this. Sometimes I have to work really hard to think of some way to put it that would be understandable and easily grasp, grasped by all of us. And I actually wrote these things and looked back, and this is of the Lord. And I think he brought this to my mind. Uh, and I hope it comes across in a good way. Here's what repentance requires. Okay, first, it requires an honest appraisal of our condition. An honest appraisal of our condition. A true understanding of who we really are. For most of the story, the younger son thought he was right, that he, uh, that his father was wrong, and, and the honest appraisal of his condition is found for us in verse 17 when he says, I perish. A very similar word to all the other phrases in Luke 15 for lost. It's almost as if he's admitting, admitting I am lost. I am perishing. An honest appraisal. And, and this is where most people struggle getting past even this thought because when you discuss the gospel with people or maybe you're feeling this way the honest appraisal of our condition is that what we are what we're good we're pretty good and if you wanted to line up all people on the earth probably you're right about that right our taxes are due did anybody cheat on them did anybody say you made less than you did right Anybody having an affair right now? Uh, 
you know, anybody, anybody involved in illegal human trafficking, uh, anybody rob a bank, right? These type of things that we just elevate to, you know, I don't want anybody to come forward on any of these things, but uh, these, these, are things, these are things we classify as the biggies, right? Come on now. And, and if we lined up those people, say, well, yeah, compared to that, I, you know, and so we fail to make an honest appraisal of ourselves. We can even be talking to individuals and expressing, man, this is what's in it. Oh, yeah, you know, I've done those things. But you know what? I tried really hard, too. And they don't make that honest appraisal. You must yourself make an honest appraisal of your own condition and say to yourself, I am lost. Whether it's overtly lost or covertly lost, I am not a good person. And nothing I can do can overcome this. I cannot work my way out of this. I cannot tip the scales in my favor. An honest appraisal of your condition is required. And second, a humble admission of your contrition. An honest appraisal of your condition and a humble admission of your contrition. In other words, when he makes an honest appraisal, he says, I perish or I'm lost. And his humble admission is what? I have what? Sinned. I have sinned. Notice the son doesn't say, I have sinned, but dad, come on, you were, you were over the top, weren't you? Or, or I have sinned, but we all make mistakes. There's no excusing it. There's no rationalizing it. It's just a humble admission. This is who I am. This is the position I am in, and I am desperately sorry about it. Remember we talked about repentance? Repentance is not just worldly sorrow when we're sorry about what it does to us. Right? That's worldly sorrow. Man, I'm sorry that this sin put me in the pigsty. No, I'm sorry because I am unworthy to be called your son. See what he's saying about his relationship with the father? You were a good and kind dad. In other words, you weren't the idiot I wanted to get away from. I want to be close to you. I would even be your servant if you would let me be that. I am sinned. I am not worthy. He does not run from the responsibility of his sin. He does not excuse it, but he admits it and he faces it. Friends, this is true repentance, not a scheme or a plan, but, an, but honestly admitting who you are and then honestly acknowledging that you are sorry for your sin. Your attitude changes towards your father, and, and no longer do you just want his blessings. You want him. You want that relationship with him. He is a good and kind man. He even treats his servants well. I want to be near this father. He is a good and kind father. I will go to him. And I will say that I am sorry. That is repentance. And if we had another point, and we do, but I'm, this is where I cut it off, it would be the delight of the Father when he comes home to receive him. If you would repent like that today, it's like God just waiting out the window. That's what the Father is doing in the story. Coming? Coming? He wants everyone to repent. How I wish children, teens, and adults would all consider this. Now, we're going to close, and I just urgent, I urgently ask you to really pray and think about this, and even as we sing, not to leave, because the Spirit of God may be moving and working in people's hearts, and it's good for us to just kind of continue to think about these things as we close in prayer. Father, thank you so much for this lesson today and the example of this younger son, and, and help us to see ourselves in this parable. I pray that we have truly repented, but there may be one who hasn't. There may be someone who needs to acknowledge their sin. Help them, Father, to be convicted to do that today, and, and more so those of us, maybe many in here who have already done so. May their hearts just be rejoicing, as mine is, to know that we have a Father who, even though we have 
rejected him in the past. He has received us. He celebrates our return. He has provided the way for salvation. We're just so glad to be in the presence of this kind and good Father who we love so much. And so we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, to close, again,